a Bible with you this morning, why don't you grab it and open it to John chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 35 and following John 12, 35 and following. If you've been with us for a while, we're going through the book of John and we've kind of come to one of these kind of pivotal questions in the book of John. And let me go ahead and start by saying that I hope you brought your catcher's mitt and catcher's mask today because John's John brings the straight heat today. All right. So you got to get ready for this one because I'm going to give you some excellent lunch discussion out of this thing. Well, I'm not. John is. Uh, because the passage is not difficult to understand. You read right through it. It's plain as day what it's saying. What it means and how we're going to deal with that, you're going to be talking about it over chips. Okay? Because this is hard for us to swallow, not to understand. Easy to understand what it's saying, plain as day. What it implicates, what it means is going to be a totally different thing. So just, just get ready for this. Uh, John is going to ask a very specific question and he's going to try to answer it. And his very specific question boils down to this. If you've been with us as we've looked through the book of John, he continually, John calls Jesus's miracles. He never calls them miracles. He always calls them signs always calls them signs. And his point is, is the works that Jesus performed were meant to make the people of Israel not only know that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting on, but that he is also God in the flesh. And the question is, how did they miss that? How did they miss what Jesus was doing, which was intended for them to know that he is the Messiah and that he is God in the flesh and they miss it. And how, how do they do that? And so that's what John is going to write about. Um, what we're about to watch in the, in the book of John is, is the end of Jesus's public ministry. From here on, he's only talking to the 12 or a very small group of people. Uh, he goes into the upper room where they have the Last Supper. Uh, he's crucified. But his public ministry ends. And this is sort of John's way of explaining what would be, from the external, look like the extraordinary failure of Jesus' ministry on earth. Right? I mean, if you're preaching to crowds and they're all going, kill that dude. You, you would think that guy's not a good, he didn't do a good job. Right? You're going, did you just say Jesus did a good job? No, you did. I didn't say that, right? Okay, so here's the passage, and let's walk through it. I want to show you how John builds into this because he begins with an understanding of what Jesus is calling us to do. In John 12, 35, he says this. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. So this is Jesus calling them to believe, to follow him, that he is the light they are to follow. In fact, we know that Jesus has been saying, I am the light of the world. And his image that John is trying to bring out is not only Jesus, the light of Israel, he's the light of the world. He is the way of salvation for everyone. And that it is to follow him, to walk in that light that ultimately will lead us out of darkness. Now, there's a couple of things we have to deal with to understand the fullness of what we're going to have here as a passage. One, when, when Jesus says, walk in the, I am the light, right? Here's the light is among you. The darkness will overtake you. Jesus is presupposing. He is saying you already live in the dark. 
you are already living in the dark and I am the light that comes to show you the way out of the dark. The Bible presupposes and understands humanity as being naturally and fundamentally in the dark spiritually. That we are, as the Bible will say, born into sin. Uh, Jesus called us the slaves of sin, that we obey it. Paul said we are dead in sin. It is our master. And on and on and on. That our natural state is to be lost in sin. So Jesus is the interruption of that, the darkness. He is the light that illumines the darkness, right? We all know darkness is just the absence of light. When the light comes on, it dispels the darkness out of sheer necessity. That's what it does, right? Uh, one of my four-year-old uh, son, one of his favorite little games is to get the flashlight by my bed, go into the darkest room he can find in the house, close the door and flip it on and off, right? Have a little mini rave in the bathroom. You know, like in there. Because he loves doing that, it goes from dark to light to dark to light. Because the light automatically dispels this darkness. We exist in a world of sin and darkness unless God dispels that sin and darkness. We exist in that so much so, it is so much a part of how we uh, live and move and have our being, to borrow the phrase... That it would not even seem weird to us to follow those things that are anti-God. Jesus says, you're in the dark and you don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're doing. Okay, If you're a college student, high school student here, virtually every piece of pop culture art you will consume out of the trillions of hours you will consume, inundate you with the message of follow your heart. Right? See who you are and follow it to the ends, no matter what. It's, I've just explained the plot of every teenage movie ever, right? <laughs> follow your heart, no matter what your mean dad says. There it is. That's every movie that's ever been made for teenagers. Now, there are some ways that that, that can be true and, and allow me to be massively stereotypical. Like if you're a guy and you want to dance ballet and the culture says, you got to play football and you're like, no, but I want to dance. We'll go do that. That is. Not an issue. What this is saying is that if we follow our hearts into the notions of right and wrong, if we pursue our hearts into the knowledge of the spiritual, we are following false guides. We are following false trails. As a matter of fact, to use the image, we won't even know where we're going. In the Proverbs, it says there is a way that seems right to a man But its end is the way of death. Left to our own instincts and own ways, we will only mire ourselves in more sin. So when you see this passage pop up and say, Jesus says, the light is with you for only a little while. Follow the light, walk in the light, so the darkness won't overtake you. Look at verse 36. It's almost formulaic. Okay, it's almost formulaic. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. I mean, that's the gospel. If you want to say the gospel as simply as possible, it's this. Jesus came to save you. Believe it and he will. I mean, that's as simple as I can say the gospel. And that's what this is saying. Jesus has come to save us from the innate struggle we have of sin. The struggle of sin we have from before we are born. And right there is where we are going to run into one of the problems we're going to face with this text. 
See, almost all of us here come from Western Civ, and not just Western Civ, but American Western Civ. And because of that, we are all inundated with a worldview, a style of looking at our lives' existence that Rick and I last week and have in privately called the sovereign self. We view our own existence as an individual to the degree that the right of self-determination, that nothing has power over me except my own thoughts, desires, and will is so inundated in us that we're almost unable to get that the Bible doesn't teach that. Does the Bible say we have responsibility for our actions? Yes, it does. Does the Bible say we choose and have volition of our acts? Yes, it does. Does the Bible say we are sovereign over ourselves? No, it does not. I mean, let me put it to you this way, as simple a thing as I can. One of the most key discipleship moments of your whole life. You are either a sovereign self or a created being. Which one is it? The very fact that you are created means there is someone over you whose authority you don't surpass. The very fact that there is a creator tells us that we are fundamentally, in our very essence, subjugated. We are the subjects of a creator. See, the Bible, the Bible does put forward ideas of individualism, but it contains that individualism. It's an understanding that we are never above God's reign and rule, ever. And so when you read this passage, as we dive into it, remember the offer of that salvation that God says, believe and follow and walk. The question is, why did so many miss it in Jesus's time? And John lays this out perfectly clear. Now, the, if you notice the passage, it says uh, John twelve thirty six a It's just because it's the first half of the passage. The whole passage says this. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you've watched over the last years, we've shown that John loves using physical descriptions to intonate a spiritual reality. He loves using physical pictures as a larger picture of a spiritual truth, right? Nicodemus the Jewish man, teacher of Israel, doesn't get who Jesus is. The Gentile woman, shown who Jesus is. Spiritual truth. The gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles. Uh, water at the well is not just water that's turned into wine. It's an image of Judaism being transformed into Christianity. On and on and on and on. And we've already seen this image play itself out once. Jesus in the temple says the words, I am God. He calls himself God. They pick up stones to kill him. And John says, so he hid himself and he left the temple. It's a physical description of, the, of God leaving the temple of Judaism. Now my presence is in my son, not in a temple. So what's the physical truth here that manifests as a spiritual reality? He says the light's here, believe in it, follow it but then hides himself from them. And they cannot find him. Told you you're gonna have some good questions at lunch, didn't you? You're like, 
well, that can't be what John means. I mean, you're going to show us the verses after they go. Well, that's not really what it means. Actually, I'm going to show you the verses that say that's exactly what it means. Sorry, that's the, that's the path we're going down. And I know, I get it. This is going to be a difficult thing for a lot of us if you've never really gone through this. This is a hard passage. But we're never going to dodge hard, hard passages as best we can. We're never going to dodge hard passages. We're going to walk right through it. And we're going to watch the glory of God be exposed through this. All right? Now, here's the point. Jesus goes and he hid himself from him. Why did so many not believe in Jesus? Because he hid himself from them. Is that me kind of pushing my theological vision on you? This is what John is going to report. John 12, 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord there is a euphemism for the miracles. The, think of it as the power of God. It's a, the arm of God is a picture of his power. The power of God is revealed to them. And have they believed? Rhetorical question, no. Next passage in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Now, the quotation from Isaiah messes the flow up here a little bit. But just cut that out just for a second and read it real quick through the whole thing so that you watch the flow of what he's saying that the passage is an interlude to as he proves his point by quoting scripture from the Old Testament. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Therefore, they could not believe. They could not believe. What do you mean, Greg? They could not believe. This word could in the Greek is the Greek word where we get our English word for dynamite. And it basically means power, ability. He is literally saying they did not have the power to believe. They did not have the ability to believe. Uh, They were not given it. How far does this go? What does John continue to say? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Let's follow this passage, which John is about to say, Isaiah wrote because he saw Jesus and prophesied about his day. Walk through this. He has blinded their eyes. That is not the devil. That's not Satan. That's not the individual. This is God. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest, meaning lest, so that they won't see and understand and turn or repent and I would heal them. In other words, I don't want that. I'm leaving them blind. I'm hardening their heart. This picture of God hardening the heart of the individual goes all the way back into the Old Testament, the story of Pharaoh, where God, working miracles in the presence of Pharaoh, meant to convince him to let the people go. Pharaoh will not believe or let the people go. 
God hardens his heart. In fact, that's not the only time the Bible says this occurs. Do you know there is a prophecy in the New Testament in the book of 2 Thessalonians that says in the end times, God will actually send a delusion upon the world so that the unbelievers will start to believe what is false so they cannot accept the gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Specifically here, it means that they will believe in the Antichrist in order that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. John 12, 41 back says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory and spoke of him, Jesus. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. In other words, John is saying they believed, but they wouldn't confess, so they might as well not have believed at all. Because belief and confession are what the Bible calls us to. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you will be saved, Romans says. If we confess with our mouth but don't believe in our heart, no. If we believe in our heart but don't confess with our mouths, which is impossible really. Because if we believe, we're transformed. I want to show you an interesting wordplay here. I know I'm making you drink from the fire hose. But I want to put this out here before we understand how John is trying to glorify God in this. Notice this this formula, if you will. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now there's some question as if this was an early way that Christians evangelized Jews. Because Paul uses almost the exact same formula in the book of Romans. Remember the passage. The glory from man more than the glory from God. That's John. In Romans 2, uh, John, uh, Paul is writing about why a Jew would be justified before God. That means saved. He would say, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. His, meaning that individual's praise, is not from man, but from God. Do you see the same formula? His praise is not from man. I think in the Greek it actually even says, it doubles it. His praise is not from man. His praise comes from God. What's the formula? What's the point? He is saying, uh, uh, okay, so Israel is conquered by a, a, a country called Assyria. Hundreds of years before Jesus comes. And they're carried off into captivity. And the only group of Jews that are left there. Actually Hebrews. Israelites that are left there. Are from the tribe of Judah. They're the only ones that are left. And so they begin to call the people that are left. Not Israelites. But Judites. And eventually Jews. If you wonder why where that word comes from. Jews. It was the shortening of Judites. That were left in the Holy Lands. In Hebrew. The word Judah means praise. That's what the word means, praise. So what's Paul saying here? Paul is saying, you are a Jew. You are one of these God's people, not by being born one of these people, but if you're inwardly one, if you believe. 
his Jewishness comes not from man, but from God. The whole point of what you see Paul and John doing is trying to put forward a picture and prepare yourselves of salvation by grace. But you didn't think that's what I was about to say, did you? You're saying, wait a minute, that whole thing about he doesn't open these people's eyes and he leaves them in the darkness and because they're in the darkness, they can never see Jesus and he, he won't open that. Like you're saying that's about salvation by grace. That is exactly what I'm saying. Now, how many of you believe in salvation by grace? Raise your hand. Fundamental Christian teaching. I hope I'm teaching it well. I hope Rick's teaching it well. I hope every person who teaches anywhere in this church is teaching it well. In fact, if you're being taught in this church by someone who's not teaching that, please give me their name because we're going to have a talk. Okay? And what is salvation by grace? Salvation by grace means unmerited favor. God gives us what we did not earn what we could not get, nothing. No part of it can be us or it isn't salvation by grace. You understand? If one iota of it is us, it wasn't salvation by grace. You did your part and earned it. And that includes even knowing there's a God at all. That you even know there's a God is grace. You ever thought of that? You cannot sit here and go, well, I could reason myself to understand that there's a God. I would reason my way to him. No, you can. What ground would you stand on to do that? What heavens would you study to ascertain that? You say, well, creation has the image of God. Yeah, and who built that? Everything we know about God is a gift. And it is a gift of incalculable worth. Every thought I have about God is a gift. Everything I know about God is a gift. Every second that my mind turns toward him is a gift. Every song I sing, every scripture I read, everything I know about God was a gift. From my very first thoughts about God to my my highest understandings of the scripture, it's all grace. It's all a gift because my natural state is in the dark, not having any light whatsoever. And I beg you to consider this because this foundational understanding of the amount of grace God has given us to know him through Jesus can overwhelm your heart and it's meant to. Because if I forget that even that I know there's a God is a gift of grace, something so simple, let alone the incredible, unmerited, why me knowledge that I know Christ is Savior? Why me? Why not the Pharisee? If I don't keep that as a bedrock of how I understand how God is dealing with me in the world, I can very easily fall into the mire of my circumstances. 
my wife and I, our family, and I, I don't, I hate doing this. My wife and I, our family, for about the last three years have been going through just an absolute meat grinder. I mean, just chewing us up and spitting us out. And that's not what was me because everybody, everybody has pain. We all do. But just the other day, we were having this conversation about what's most important through all of this is to constantly, even in the, 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 just the depths of pain over things, remind ourselves, but he is good and I will not let go of that. I won't let go of that. And if my understanding of he is good is that he makes my circumstances easy, then I don't realize I've asked him for almost nothing. Do you see? Like making my life easy is nothing for God. That's easy. Hey, God, could you make my circumstances easy? Yeah, okay. Done. Like, that's it. There's your trillion dollars. You're healthy. Everything works. You're good. What God has given me is the impossible. That not only will I know him, but I will be adopted by him and a part of his family at his dining table forever in a kingdom given to his son that his son has now said, I will make you my brother and you will be my co-heir. That wasn't easy. That I will, the Bible says, know God because I will see him. I will be out of the darkness forever. To ask God, hey, you know, could you, could you actually do something here, God, and let my car start, you know, get on the program? It's a small vision when what God is doing is granting me more. And I don't say this to dismiss pain in the room because I know every one of us has places of deep pain. What a salvation by grace where even knowing who God is gives us is the chance to step back for a minute and go, God did not give me this pain lightly, but he is using it to show me him. Either by saving me from it or by holding me through it. When you see these passages, Jesus is bringing this out. In John 12, 44, he cries out. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He is speaking about his oneness with the Father. If you know me, Jesus says, you know God. If you know me, you know God. This is not uh, Western civilization imperialism. This is not Christianity's power play of you know, Catholic power. This is not the patriarchy. This is not Paul's invention to keep people down. This is Jesus going, I am God in the flesh. And if you know me, you've known God. If you hate the exclusivity of this statement, if you're going, well, Jesus, couldn't we consider other religions? Jesus is going, no, because I'm God. And this is the one I'm doing. Right? I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me 
may not remain in darkness. Christ came, God in the world, to show us who God is. To grant us a grace. To say a grace beyond imagining is crazy because all grace is beyond imagining. You didn't deserve to even know there's a God because of my sin. I have come to be light. That you will know God. When Jesus is being baptized, when Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration, what does the, the voice from heaven say? This is my son. Believe in him. Believe in him. You may be in a catastrophic moment of pain in your life right now. You may just be in a, time, a season of just constant irritation, but not devastation. Uh, if you are in neither, be patient. It cometh right soon, right? Somebody go outside and slash their tires. I'm just kidding. I can't advocate that. Pain is unavoidable in this life. We wish it was. We run from it. But it is the definition of this life. In fact, Hebrews says Jesus had to learn through suffering. Jesus also said, you will not be elevated above your master. There is a simple lesson God wants us to learn through our suffering, and that is the grace of his presence. If Jesus is not enough in our suffering, Jesus will not be enough in our blessing. And you can have the faith in the God who sent him that in the middle of the direst, darkest night, the smallest light of Jesus will win. Amen? Amen. Amen. you stand and pray with me? Again, I know that there are many needs in the room. You are in places that you desperately need prayer. One of the ways God wants to reveal himself to us is through prayer, not only alone, but with the body. He calls us to pray with our elders of our churches so that we can see him move in our lives and be glor- glorify him because seeing his power, but also see the grace of his presence. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, our elders and some of their spouses will be here to pray with you. We would love to pray with you, especially if you don't know what I mean when I say believe in Jesus and be saved. If you don't know what I mean, and I don't mean that you haven't been to church before and you've heard it before. I mean, you go, I know what you, I've heard it said, but I don't know what it means. We'd love to pray with you about that. Let's pray together as a congregation will be dismissed. Our Father in God, we praise you for the grace of your presence in our lives, that we even know you're here. Let alone that you became human, lived on the earth, suffered, and died so that you could adopt us as your children. God, I praise you for the grace of all things. God, let us focus on the power of the gift you have given us. 
let us be reminded that grace is more than just a legal wrangling argument to get us into heaven. Grace is the gift of you. In every fathom, every season, every moment. There will be not one speck of you that we will have without it. And we will have all of you because of it. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, please come. Otherwise, grace, peace to you. Take care.